Kenzie. How you doing? I am good. How are you? I am hanging in there. You know, before we get um, started talking, and everybody knows I do this, so here we go again. I'm going to make you introduce yourself rather than me introduce you with a bio. Got it. So uh, my name is Tansy, Tansy McNulty, and I am an Air Force spouse, a boy mom, and I'm the founder of 1M4, and that stands for 1 Million Madly Motivated Moms. Uh, Our goal is 1M4 is to end police violence by the year 2038. Wow. So, okay, we're going to unpack all of that. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know where to start first. I, w- I want to say the, the the 1 million madly motivated moms for last, because first of all, the title is great. I mean, not for a great reason, but it is a great kind of it describes you and kind of you want to know more. But first, let's talk about the Air Force spouse thing. As you know, I'm an I'm a army brat. I know you're like, what? Uh, my father was in the military. He was in the army and I was born, you know, in Germany and traveled around all my life until he retired um, when I was in high school. So he was career army. So um, I didn't know about the army spouse. I mean, the air force spouse, you're an air force spouse. Air force, we're air force, but we're all, you know, we're all military yeah. spouses. So we yeah. move a lot. So you, you come from the, you know, the child perspective, you know, being the one that, you know, moves with your, your family. Well, I come from the spouse perspective. We move a lot. This is the longest we've ever lived anywhere. And it's been four and a half, almost five years here in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. So yeah, got to touch on that because that's an important part of our lives and our experiences that I think is you know, a little bit different. It's, it has its own culture. Like we have our own culture as black folk. And then we have this military culture. And then we have this military who travel people culture because a lot of folks may not take their family when they travel. I mean, when they travel overseas, I'll put it that way. So mm-hmm. I think that was a really unique experience for me. So tell me about the um, your organization and like, how did you decide to start it? When when did it start? What does it look like exactly what it is that you do? So it it was started out of sheer necessity. I had to do something. So when I was um, pregnant with my oldest son, I have two children, two little boys, a four-year-old and a five-year-old. When I was pregnant with my oldest son. I um, My husband took me on a birthday slash baby moon. So what's a baby? A baby moon is when you're pregnant, you go on a vacation, have fun, and kind of disconnect. So we did that. Um, we disconnected from the world for uh, six days, almost a whole week. Came back, and this was the first week of July 2016. Came back, turned our phones back on, reconnected, and my social media feed and the news kind of flooded. It was the deaths of Austin Sterling, Philando Castile, as well as Ronnie Shumpert, which is a, a little, a less known name, but still very important because his life mattered too. And I'm pregnant with a son, with a black, black child. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> what is happening? And what can I do? And, and what I noticed was on my social media feed, like most of my friends' family were outraged. Everyone's outraged. All of my black friends, marginalized friends were outraged. It was very, very silent for my white counterparts. Very silent. Now, I don't know if they didn't see it or didn't hear about it, but I took it kind of personally. Like you're my friend. We're, I only connect with people who I'm friends with right now on social media. Let's put that out there. If you're connected with me, I consider you, you know, casual friend or acquaintance. And you don't care about this. You tell me about your food. You tell me about when you go on vacation. Tell me when your dog poops, <laughs> but you're not talking about our lives. Mm. So I knew right then that I had to unite with people who had the same vested interests that I have, who have the same motivating factors that I do. And that motivating factor is the next generation, is raising our children. That's And that's not just biological children. So Black women, 
we tend to mother in a variety of ways. Like we give birth, you biological mother, but you're also have you're a god mommy, you're a play cousin, you're auntie to someone. So you're mothering in a lot of facets. So it's, you know, one in four was for black moms and mother figures. The only thing you have to do is have is actually care about someone from the next generation. Have a, someone that you love, ages zero to 18. Hmm. And that's how one in four was born. Wow. Wow. That's really kind of cool when you when you first were talking about sort of how uh, mothering is different for, for Black folks. And I'm not a mom, meaning biologically, but certainly I have my I have my cousins who are and this is so it's so hard to explain to people because it's like, well, how is that person your cousin? You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, never forget one of my cousins. Um, she was at uh, Brown University. It was her freshman year. She had a roommate and I was the first relative to come other than her parents who dropped her off. So I came to visit her because I happened to be in Boston. So I said, let me you know, drive on down and come see you or drive on up, whichever direction it is. And um, so I, I go to see her and she said, yeah, I was telling my roommate that my cousin was coming. And she said, well, what cousin is it? She goes, what do you mean? And <laughs> she's trying to define like who I am. Like, you know, it's my my father's cousin. She, well, then that's not really your cousin. She's like, well, wait, what? So she's like, I couldn't explain to her. And I'm thinking, well, don't even try to explain to her like all the other people that are like, I don't even know how we're cousins, but we call each other cousins mm-hmm. or, you know, uncles or aunties and and we're not related. And, you know, growing up when I wasn't living, you know, outside of Inglewood, New Jersey, which is where the more or less family unit was on my mom's side, like everybody in Inglewood was my mom. Everybody was my auntie. Everybody was like, like I couldn't turn around, but and a neighbor could tell me, oh no, you can't do that. Or oh yeah, let me let me make sure you do this. Let me buy your Girl Scout cookies, or whatever. Everybody took care of everybody. And that is sort of kind of embedded, I think, in our DNA, right? It's how we were raised. We were raised with community. Yeah. Like it does not matter if I am blood related to you by blood or not, you are my auntie. Yes. I respect you as such. Yeah. You can reprimand me. My mom is going to be like, what did so-and-so say that you did? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm believing her or him, whoever it is. Yes. Like it's a community raises us. And yeah. that's that's how we were, how we operate. Yes. So when we say mother or mother figures, it's anybody who's providing nurturing environment around a child. Yeah. Yeah. And I find it also interesting that when you were talking about when some of these atrocities were happening, you know, there was silence amongst your friends who are not black or or your friends or your colleagues or your followers on, you know, social media, et cetera. And and I um, distinctly remember, you know, a couple of people reaching out to me who never reach out to me and we're just checking on you. We're checking on all of our black friends. And I'm like, but why don't you check on me all the time? Why are you just checking on me now? You know? And, and kind of when it was over, it was like, well, it was, it was like radio silence. And it's like, well, it's not over. There's still work to be done. So being able to kind of, you know, set up something so that it's people who, you know, are invested and get it and want to work forward to um, actually address the issues was, you know, really brilliant. And so how did you come up with the name? So the name came about because I felt like when I first got in this work, I need like a million people as quickly as possible. But as I've been in the work for a little, now going on four years, like I really don't need that many people to have an impact. Just I need committed people. But so that's where the one million came from. My initial thoughts, like I have to have a whole bunch of people really, really fast. And then um, madly motivated. I had to pad the word mad in there because, you know, sometimes our stereotype is the angry black woman, angry mm-hmm. black person. And I'm, I lean into that. Like, yes, I am angry. Yes, I am mad. And it is very valid. Why? There are things happening 
every day in this country that should never happen. And I'm ticked off about it. Mm-hmm. And so we're mad, we're motivated by that anger. So we're madly or, you know, incessantly or passionately motivated by our motherhood, because I have a whole generation that's depending on me to make the decisions now, to do things now, to protect them later. Mm. So every word in the, every word in the name has a reason yes. for being in there. It's just really long. So when I tell people, they're like, wait, wait, what? So I, I shorten it as we use the acronym 1M4 to be short, because it's starts with four M's. Right. Madly motivated. Right. Right. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's a little bit, not the same as how I came up with unapologetically black unicorns, but somewhat similar. So each Mm -hmm. word actually has a certain, certain meaning. Um, And luckily the acronym comes out UBU, which to me sounds like you do you, you be you, you be the best you you can possibly be, you be you. So it actually worked. Yeah. I was lucky in that way. When you talked about 2038, is that a benchmark for a generation? Is that where the number? That's comes exactly from? what it is. Usually, a generation is measured by twenty to thirty years. So yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll give them, We're giving ourselves one generation okay. to end a systemic issue, which is very much a stretch goal, right? It's, yes. It seems like this massive mammoth of a goal, but when you break it out into small, small little pieces, it's very, very achievable. Okay. Yes, yeah, one generation. Give us, giving ourselves a generation to change a uh, systemic issue. So when you say you're breaking it down into smaller pieces, what are some of those smaller pieces like? Talk about some of the actual work that you're doing and yeah, like give examples of some of the work that you all are doing. So at one in four, so we follow information, we follow data, right? And in policing, oddly enough, even though it's been studied for, I don't know how long, they don't have the best data because usually we're, we're depending on the ones who harm to report their harm and report it well so that we can document trends. So it's, of course, the data is not that good. But one thing we do know that has been proven for a while now is that 25% of those who are killed in police violence incidents are those experiencing mental health emergencies. So that's a fact. Mm-hmm. That's been proven several times that at least, at least 25% of those who are killed by police have a mental health concern or disability. So if I have 100% of an issue and I can get rid of 25% of that, I'm going after what I know first. So that's why we decided to come together and put together a mobile crisis unit guide mm-hmm. that will provide each state, each state that has them, information for each state and location for alternatives to police response. So when a loved one or someone you experience on the streets having a mental health emergency, you can call this number and this entity can respond versus calling 911. So we started out with a list of about 35 mobile crisis units that we knew across the country. I split the list up between our members. I drafted up a quick script for us to call these individual entities. We called them and each each time we ended the call, we ended it with who else is in your space? Who do you know that does a similar work in this state or another state? Compiled all the information, put it on our website and we pushed it out during Minority Mental Health Month, which was July of 2021. So if I can move that 25% away from even calling or interacting with officers, I can save hundreds of lives. Wow. Before you were doing this work, do you have background in training in something completely different? And then you kind of, like how many people just get up and started, well, I think a lot, but you know, start a nonprofit, (laughs) like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, let me just quit that job over there and I'm going to go over here and start a nonprofit. Like, okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. How did, yeah. What were you doing before? So before I was a supply, I call myself a recovering supply chain professional. Okay. So I have expertise in logistics, transportation, and procurement. So I work for very large corporations, and I, my job is to save them money and lean up their processes. 
So my deliverables at the end of every year was how much money did you save? Whether you saved it in cost of widgets or you saved it in cutting parts out of processes and linked it up and made it where we have less defects. So all I've done is taken my training from supply chain, so from supply chain and shifted it over to social justice. Yes. Yes. So I look at it as my, the cost I'm saving now, the cost of lives. I'm reducing loss, loss of life. Yes. I'm actually saving t- taxpayers dollars because it's saving lives and reducing like all these lawsuits and issues that come about later. Mm-hmm. And I'm leaning up, I'm standardizing processes. Mm-hmm. So I would love for one day, no matter what police department you come in contact with, you have the same first five steps. Hi, individual. My name is Sergeant so-and-so. I am stopping you because you did this or we're looking for this type of person. That's why we're interacting around. Calm, straight to the point, no screaming, no projecting. Did you tell them why they were being stopped? And are you are you operating in a healthy manner with this individual, treating them with care and not as a criminal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I like standardized process. Yeah, yes, I see how it translates <laughs> from, I was like, wow, you sound like the mental health system. I mean, the mental health system in, in itself is kind of like a supply chain, right? Like, but you know, who's the customer? What's the widget? What's the outcome? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I could see how it transfers over really well to not just mental health, but also to any kind of public service system. I mean, it's just people instead of, I hate to say people are widgets, I really do, but um, <laughs> because we're all- Sometimes we're all you have of, to think of it like that. You're yeah. trying to have a, 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 a quality product or a healthy individual at the end of this interaction. Yeah. You just follow certain steps to get there. And six Sigma is literally six. Sigma. Oh my goodness. You did not say six Sigma. So I'm an IO person, <laughs> IO meaning industrial organizational psychology. And um, yes, we had to learn about lean processes, six Sigma, reducing errors and things like that. So um, eliminate it. Yeah. So the, uh, the thing that uh, was, is really interesting is watching police interactions when Um, somebody is upset on one side of the equation, then how does the person with the power on the other side of the equation remain calm rather than equaling the upsetness that they're seeing in the other person? So if the driver, let's say you stop somebody and the driver's yelling at you, how is it that the police or anybody can control not yelling back at the driver, like keeping the voice calm, keeping, and I think this is true for people with mental health conditions when we're confused and we don't know what's going on. And so our voices are raised and kind of, we get agitated is the word that's usually used. How does the person who's helping us or supporting us remain as calm as possible? Like not get frantic, not get loud. Cause we're going to get loud. They're going to get loud. We're going to get louder. They're going to get louder. They're going to get loud. Right. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, and, and I have a, a very strong belief in this is that hurt people will hurt people, that healed people will heal people. You know, the, the pressures of being a police officer are so intense. How are we ensuring that they have the supports needed to be the most healthy police officer they could possibly be? I actually knew a person like that who was Amazing. I mean, just worked amazingly with as a police officer, worked amazingly with people um, and just had this way. And I was like, how is this person, this police? He's just too damn nice. Right? <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I mean, within the script, is there a context or a container of expectations of supports and health for the person who has to go out and do this work? So uh, I'll go back a little bit. When we talk about, you know, how do we, so we're humans interacting with humans, right? Yeah. I, I I firmly believe that as an officer, you have to remember that you are the 
quote unquote, trained professional in the interaction, no matter who's screaming at you or acting out, you have to remember, go back to, if you had training, go back to the training that you had, back to your checklist. Hi, my name is, I pulled you over because when you're looking more at things as a process, it can remove your emotions, emotions from it. Usually when someone's talking about police, it's not the best. You're not going to have the best day. They're not usually, you know, stopping you to, you know, offer you <laughs> coffee. Unless maybe you're having a baby. I don't know. That might be the one time, like you're driving to the hospital, like baby's coming out, like maybe seeing a police officer might be the thing you need to see at that point. But other than that, maybe. it's kind of scary. It's very yeah, scary. Yeah, it's scary. And it's rare that you're interacting, that you're interacting with them because it was a good situation. It's kind of rare. So they, you know, you have, they have to remember, you know, I guess both, both sides have to remember that, okay, this probably ruined somebody's day. So let me go back to what I know. My name is, I'm, I'm stopping you because... Do you understand that? Oh, you don't understand that. Well, here's here are my my rules or my reg that I'm going against regulation that I'm going against right now. That's why I'm interacting with you. That's the only way I can think of to pull the the emotions out of it is to stick mm. to a, a script, a process. When you follow yes. a process, you eliminate defects. Ah. It, it, it standardizes things. You get rid of defects. You get rid of rid of issues. If I know that you're asking me the same questions that you asked Jane Smith, I don't feel I don't feel bad. I'm like, oh, you, you ask everybody that. Yeah, this, this yeah. is what what said. It just makes things a lot easier. And speaking of officers, so my my uh, my little brother's police officer, and my poor mom is like, you know, she's on, <laughs> on each side. Like, wait a minute, what? She's in all his pinnings, and she's also supporting my organization. <laughs> so funny, plus I'm yeah. But anyway, so my my little brother's a police officer, and you know, I I want him to be healthy too mentally. I want him to stay healthy while he's in the role. I want him to be safe. So I honestly feel like officers should have mandatory mental health, if, if not mandatory, incentivized mm. four times a month, twice a month. You have to have, you have to have your own therapy sessions or counseling or some type of an outlet mm-hmm. to talk about what's going on with you. Because yes. I need it too. They do see a wider range, array or range of things. I understand that. I just think the policing institution has to do a much better job than they have been doing at addressing the issues specifically when it comes to race. Wow. And I, I'm usually wow. talking about the black race when I'm, when I'm yes. like, there yeah. are some serious issues there. You, there are some serious biases that creep in, not even creep in, they just kind of jump into their work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that show that shows up with, you know, we're three times yeah. more likely to be killed by police. It's, it's, that's a fact. Yeah, I mean, we have to recognize too that the racism that happens in the world or social injustices that happen in the world will happen in our workplaces, end of discussion. I mean, they will yes. because- that's just, it's not like somehow you've got this steel barrier. It's not going to come in. It is going to come in. And our obligation is to address it, not to say that it's not there. So I, I totally agree. And to recognize it's not a bad thing, you know, to write, to say, well, okay, if it ha- like it happens out there, it's going to happen in here. Like when we think of mental health systems, we talk about stigma as if stigma is out there like outside of like, like somehow it hit the door of the mental community mental health center and said, oh yeah, I'm not welcome here. Let me walk away. No, 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 right. no, no, no. Stigma's going to come on up in there just, just the same way that it, that it shows up outside of the mental health system. So we have to recognize that and, and address it rather than thinking it's a bad thing, just recognize it's a thing. And then what the heck do we do about it? And I also love the script too, because it's almost like as the 
recipient of this kind of like script from the police officer. Now I know what's going to happen. He's going to ask me, he or she is going to ask me these five questions. And I know that um, I'm going to respond to these questions. And if it goes awry of that, then we've got a little bit of a problem. And I can say, well, wait a minute, just like the Miranda, you got to read me the five questions. Like almost make it a, a Miranda of questions. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. It's just it's just another process. You already have yeah. to read the Miranda rights in the front end before you even get there. Yeah. When you first yeah. interact, let's just do this. Let's, it, let's just make it where people they know what to expect. You yeah. know the officer is gonna say this, you already know what to expect. You shouldn't yeah, be mad. If exactly. you get mad, you can get mad if you want to, but you already know it's coming. Yeah. So um, what are some other things that you're working on now? So we, we continue. So we have our uh, the sister check-ins, and that's really to protect um, Black women's mental health. Mm-hmm. It's just checking in with one another. What's happened in the last two weeks? Anything you want to share? Anything you need help with? Do you want us to, to, to do anything for you, support you in any way? Or do you just want us to celebrate you? Have you shared with anybody that this happened? And every so often we invite special guests like we did with the Black Black Women Dispatchers. We've had a prosecutor on. We've had um, public defenders. We have my brother on from the police officer's perspective. That was interesting. Mm. (laughs) We've had victims of police violence on. And uh, coming up here shortly, we're going to have interview um, the founder of Angel Tech. And Angel Tech is a software, cloud-based GPS software that turns your cell phone into a personal security system. So you press a button and it live streams directly to your designated individuals what's happening right then. It can be used for police interactions, which is what we would use it for. Also, if you're just walking home alone, you feel you don't feel safe. So you press the button, the angel tech, it starts to record. It lets the individual that it's recording to know your exact coordinates. So they can get to you quickly. Oh, wow. So, yeah, the founder, James Samuel Jr., uh, we connected on LinkedIn through our military. We'll have a military story or back, background. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, have we work together? I'm like, you have the technology. I have the people. Let's, <laughs> let's go oh, wow. for it. Yeah, exactly. So be, he's coming in shortly to meet with the women to talk about, you know, safety for Black women. We do. We have a deep, deep breathing session coming up, deep breath session or breath work session coming up. We've done yoga. And it's really just to provide an outlet for Black women. So I'm, I've mm. been doing this now for almost two years, almost two years, that particular portion of it. So I'm very proud of that to protect Black women's health. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, we also we also provide um, financial and emotional support for families that are impacted by police violence. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what are you seeing as far as the intersection of Black folks and mental health police response? So we know that it's like 25 percent for police response as a whole. What of what percentage of that 25 percent are, are Black folks? I'm not sure of the exact percent. So I know 25% are those who are mentally unstable. And I know it's right. it increased by like 16 times if they're black. I don't yes. know what that exact number is. Okay. I think that, that helps right there. Yeah. Like exactly yeah. What you said. If you're black yeah. and you right. and you have ment- a mental um, health emergency, you're 16 times more likely. So that, that makes it where we're kind of nervous when we do meet when someone does need help. Like you don't want to risk them not surviving the interaction. So that's why we provided the alternatives. The sad right. part about the alternatives is we don't have enough across the country to cover every person, every, every group or every location. Right. 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 If people are struggling and maybe they don't need mobile response, but they need a number to call. um, Are you including things like warm lines, peer warm line, NAMI warm line, you know, things like that. Is that also on that list or is only mobile response? On our list is specific to people who can respond. 
Okay. Um, there, there are a, a lot of um, like the warm lines or the suicide prevention lifeline. There are, are yeah. other lines or resource lines that are available. Someone that I recently met, the founder of um, Don't Call the Police. I think her site mm-hmm. is actually don'tcallthepolice.org. Um, mm-hmm. She she has like a, a list by by city as well that has the warm lines on there as well okay. as those on. I wanted to make sure ours was specific to people who can show up, not just, a, um, not just a phone call. Not just a talk. Okay, great, mm-hmm. great. So, but I, I know I'm going to send it out to, to a couple of listservs that I hadn't thought about till we had this conversation. Great, See how cool great. these conversations are. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, we can chat and then we can also be very, very action oriented. Um, so I know there's some other work that I uh, wanted to talk about some cases. Or yes. Some. So, yeah, um, go so for far, it. so far we've, we've supported um, two cases. We have another five that are on like in our docket to, to help um, help with shortly, but I wanted to call them out. So the first case that we're supporting is is um, the family of Jamarian Robinson out of Atlanta. He was killed in August 2016. Um, he's actually diagnosed with schizophrenia as well, but they, they essentially had the wrong person and pretty much just slaughtered him. So we've been standing with his mother, Monteria um, Robinson, for a year and a half now. Mm. She, she recently got, she did actually get an indictment of the officers, which is almost unheard of since it had been five years. Mm-hmm. She got an indictment in October, which we're very, very happy about, but she still has to go through the trial process. So mm-hmm. you can find it, just type in Jamarian Robinson or um, his accounts are all, off, all over social media as well, for Justice for Jamarian. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, the second case is one that we're actively working on as well, is the case of Terrence Richardson and Farine Claiborne. They are out of, uh, they live in, reside in Waverly, Virginia, and they have been wrongfully incarcerated now for 24 years. Mm. 24 years. They were found not guilty. It was, it was, a, it, was it, it involves the death of a police officer. A police officer was killed in Waverly, Virginia in 1998. Um, and the officers and those who worked the case identified Terrence and Farine. They were found not guilty. So you would think, oh, they're not guilty. Time for them to get out. Well, the family of the, the, the police officer wasn't pleased with them being able to walk. So they called in the FBI. They called in some favors with the FBI. The FBI came in and essentially said, oh, they sell drugs. So then they had to go back through the court system. There was no, no drugs found, no money found. Like there was nothing found. Then <laughs> back through the court system, they were found guilty of conspiracy to sell drugs, which means there was no paraphernalia found. There was nothing found. Right. They were found guilty of that. So you would mm-hmm. think, usually that comes with like an eight to 10 year sentence, I believe. But the, the judge in that case, he used RICO law. RICO's law, I think is what it's called. So he used the prior case, even though they were found that guilty of it, to tag it on with the guilty for the conspiracy for drugs, which gave them life in prison. I know that's a lot. I know, there, I know a few listeners probably like, what is she talking about? I promise this is all true. It is all, all over the internet. We are in talks with their legal team literally almost every other day. But yes, so we have been trying for, we've been on the case now for a year and a half, and we recently got a win. So the former attorney general, attorney general, which is Mark Herring, he decided to sign on with, with the case with um, Jared Law, which is that law firm that's covering Terrence Brown as the writ of innocence, saying that he believes they're innocent as well. Great news in October. Great news. Attorney general sitting on our side. But what happens in November of last year? There's an election. Mark Herring is no longer the attorney general starting in January of this year. So the new attorney general has decided that he thinks they might possibly potentially be guilty. So he needs more time. So he's asking- Oh, wait, wait, wait. Guilty of the original crime in which they were found not guilty. 
correct the original. He wants more time. Keep in mind, these men have been sitting in prison for 24 years. You get a you get a big win. You're like, oh man, we got the Attorney General of Virginia. He's on our side in October. Change of leadership in January. Someone who ran on law and order. That's all I'll say. And he has decided that he wants more time. So I would, so any of your listeners, if you want to help, <laughs> their their website is notguiltyservinglife.org. Like they very much named it like it, like what's happened, not guilty serving uh-huh. life. Wow, this is this is again, you know, when I always, I don't know, I just shrug my shoulders. And quite frankly, not only do I get mad, I get really sad. I get sad about being black in America sometimes is like the hardest thing on the face of the freaking earth. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to put it. And you, I keep wondering, like, when are we going to catch a freaking break? When are we going to catch a break here? And I know that's, it sounds, I don't know what it sounds. And matter of fact, I don't care what it sounds. I hope you all understand what I'm saying. But, <laughs> but you know, it's kind of like, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. And, you know, we sit in a time when people are talking about opioid epidemic. Who's serving life in prison for an opioid epidemic? Who's sitting in life in prison? No, no. Yeah, it's a lot. But we know, know what's going on. I, no, we know. What, I think this is where we have to kind of like, you know, speak truth to power, be open and honest that, you know, this is really about when your skin is black, when you are a man, what happens? What happens? Yes. This happens. And it is very different than with other folk. And we have to speak honestly about that. So, and that, you know, people can use judicial powers, legislative powers, policies, things like that, to be able to do stuff to folk. Yeah. And the, the sad, it's, it's really sad. And you, and you like, and, the, and I just, I feel for their mothers, right? I, I feel yes. I'm glad their mothers are still living. One, they have lost yes. many fam- family members in the last two, two plus decades. But I'm glad they're living, but you know, like you catch a brain, like, oh, we got we got this person on our side. And then oh no, we change leadership and everything changes. It and is so an I, emotional I promised, roller coaster. It is wild. It is really wild. Wow. So I wow. promised the legal team that anytime I would have a chance to speak their names in any room, I would do it. I would pull call any favorites I could to try to help them. And right now we're trying to build up this, we're trying to build up like the social media bi- viral. Like we're trying to make, make it go viral essentially so people care. Because mm-hmm. when you have, you know, a few hundred people who care, mm-hmm. they're trying to just mm-hmm. like, ah, you know, you get a few thousand who are calling his phone or emailing him who are mm-hmm. saying, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Then, they, then, then they're like, okay, you're right. They were innocent. Let's go ahead and let them know. It's wild stuff. I wanted to be sure to, to make sure I brought it up in this forum to support Terrence Richardson and Farron Claiborne. Wow. Okay. So thank you for bringing that up and, you know, speaking their names. We have to call people, call people in, call people out for all sorts of egregious stuff. Um, And, um, you know, that's what being an unapologetically Black unicorn is. That's exactly what it is. And so I dub you a UBU. Thank you. <laughs> right? UBU. I'm yeah, you were a UBU before there was a UBU. <laughs> so thank you for the work that you're doing. And, you know, let's end on something, you know, and positive, I think, at least for me, if we wanted to end on something positive is one, you know, you've given some really good examples of actions people can take. And I always see that as something positive. Oh, there's an action I can take. I'm not just left with information. And I feel like, oh my God, the world is like too heavy. No, is there any other thing, any other last 
kind of words of wisdom or something that you would like to leave the audience with? I think I, I like to leave them with something I have to remind myself of a lot, a whole lot in this work is you are way more powerful than you think, like mm. way more powerful than you think. You're more innovative than you think. You're more creative than you think. Even if I'm, I come from like an analytical mind, even with my analytical mind, I can be creative too. I can think outside of the box. I can use what I know to enact change, to demand change, and to get that change. So I have every intention of ending police violence by the year 2038 or sooner. And I'm pretty confident I can do it. As long as I can get some people with me, I can do it. I want your audience to know how powerful they are. Never forget that. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tansy, for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns podcast and having such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. And for our listeners, don't forget to join in next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.